I'm going to pray, and we're going to open up the Scriptures. Father, we thank you that as we open up Scripture, um, we get to resonate with the Word of your Spirit and, and, and your Word that has come to life in Jesus. And we thank you, Lord, that generations before us have encountered your Word in the way that we will today and have been changed, inspired, challenged, and motivated in ways that uh, have affected generations for, for many reasons that we'll find out today. So, Lord, we, we open up our hearts and minds to you. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would uh, use your word today once again to uh, speak into our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a man who was traveling uh, through America doing the Appalachian Trail, which is the longest trail through the mountains in America. And uh, he came across a little cabin and he knocked on the door. And he knocked on the door and was greeted by an elderly guy. And he went inside and he couldn't believe just how spartan the whole room looked. There was a chair, a table, um, a bed, and just a couple of utensils. And the backpacker turned to the elderly guy and he said, why is it that you have such few things? And he said, well, let me turn it around this way. He said, uh, I see you came with a backpack on and you're not carrying much. You've only got a few things that you need to get by. And he goes, why have you only got a few things as a backpacker? And he says, well, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? I'm just passing through. And, uh, and the old guy in the cabin said, yeah, so am I, just passing through. And this morning we're going to talk about something that inspired the early church to realize that they too were just passing through. And uh, James' word to us is about the return of Jesus. But he also says that we have to be patient. We have to have a patience that is in keeping with God's plan, not our own. Now, how many of you have made plans for God, prayed your prayers, and then waited for him to answer in the next five or ten minutes? It would be handy. Yeah? Come on. Let's be honest. Patience is one of the things that we learn, isn't it? God seems to work at a certain pace. He's never too late. He's never too early. All right? But we realize that in this the spiritual journey that we're on, patience is all part of the deal. We've got to learn that it's not about us, not about putting ourselves first, but it's God outworking things, the bigger picture, the bigger, the bigger plan. And so we now jump into James, James chapter 5, and uh, we start this morning at verse 7. Be patient, then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. Now, how many of you have pulled up a chair and watched grass grow? <laughs> it never seems to happen, and then you seem to go away for a day or two and come back, boof, it's all there, isn't it? That seems to be the way it works. But um, here, James is referring to the farmer who plants and sees the seasons come and go. In the spring, the rains come. In the autumn, the harvest comes. They harvest what is there. And God is the one who, in his season, establishes the right timing for everything. And so what James is doing is saying, look, this great hope that we have of Jesus returning is something that you have to be patient about. The early church was significantly impacted by the words that Jesus said when he said he would return soon. And for us as Christians, we are now two millennia, 2,000 years on from these words of Jesus. Romans tells us that... Uh, there is a time that is in God's hands, which is the times, as it's called, the times of the Gentiles. 
And this is the period of time that we're in now. We are in end times. The end times have been happening for 2,000 years. Okay? And so we're in end times. But, of course, there will be a final chapter of end times when this whole global movement that God created will be wrapped up and put in order again. Uh, but in the meantime, we're told that we have to wait until Jesus returns. Now, the good thing about the, the New Testament is it has more predictions and prophecies about Jesus coming a second time than the Old Testament ever had about his arrival the first time. So those promises are more sure, we're more confident, and uh, we can rest in that because the reassurance that we're given comes from God himself, that he will come to be with us, ultimately. And so let's have a look at a couple of scriptures from the Gospels. This is John's Gospel, uh, one we're very familiar with, I'm sure. Do not let your hearts be troubled, but you believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms, so if that were not so, would I have told you that I'm, that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Okay, so that initiates a, a, a conversation uh, with his disciples where they say, no, we don't know the way. And Jesus said, but I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so what Jesus is saying is if you yoke yourself with me, I will take you ultimately to my Father's house. And the perspective that Jesus wants us to understand is that eternity is just as much part of his reality and God's reality as this planet Earth that we're on now. And it's the old African proverb, which I come to appreciate during a time of a tragedy of a funeral, uh, where I heard that um, the Africans see that it is God who owns the land on both sides of the river. Okay, God owns the land on both sides of the river. So when we cross over that great river, when we go through those waters of death, we can be reassured that God is equally there too, probably more so, I should say, because uh, this world is just a shadow that precedes or predicts or, in a, in a sense, symbolizes what is to come. Okay, so Mark's gospel also records words of Jesus. He says, But about the day or hour no one knows, even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, be alert. You don't, you don't know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servant in charge each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch, watch. Okay, so this of course symbolizes, or more, more than symbol, symbolism, it actually is literal, whereby a farm owner would go away, he'd leave his property entrusted to those who, who work for him, and the idea was that you better be found working when I get back, okay? You better be found doing the right thing when I get back. Now, I can remember as being a teenager, being the oldest in my family, and uh, it was the year I was playing in the first 15, and my parents decided that they wanted to take themselves and my younger brother and sister on a trip to Fiji, just happened to coincide with the end of the rugby season and we needed a venue for a party. Had to be the will of God, didn't it? And uh, so, But the whole idea was to ensure that the place was perfectly tidy. Um, 
before mum and dad got back and Craig was found diligently doing his homework, which they did. What I didn't know is that a great auntie and uncle of mine also turned up when the party was going. They snuck into the house and went home. Uh, and uh, I thought I'd got away with it until they happened to report to my parents what had been happening. Now, I say that to dob myself in. How many of you have done the same? How many of you got caught doing what you shouldn't have done? Yeah, that's right. And so we find ourselves here resonating with this story because it's a very human story. It's one of uh, being responsible and then anticipating what it is that the master would say when we are found doing whatever we're found doing. And being responsible is very important. So let's go back to James. James says this, Be patient, then brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. But of course, the big question is, um, how soon is soon? We're talking 2,000 years already, so when we're talking about soon, you know, this is all relative, isn't it? This last week, the whole world celebrated the return of those young boys who were caught in the cave, the Thai boys, the Thai soccer team. And it doesn't take much imagination, does it, to anticipate, not to anticipate, to, to sort of put yourself in that same place. Here they were only a couple of hours into that little journey that uh, they wanted to go on, a journey of discovery, and next thing they had to escape the floods, and they found themselves in a cavern with no escape. They sat there in the darkness for 10 days. And I just would have, I reckon that must have been the longest, longest time, wouldn't it? Yeah, maybe somebody had a watch. They could tell the time, know how many days had gone through. But they would have ultimately been fearful that every day that passed, their rescue was going to be less, um, less likely. And so here we are in a very similar situation where we would anticipate that the longer we've waited for Jesus, the less likely it is for him to return, which is actually an incorrect thinking. You see, the early church got really excited about the return of Christ, and a lot of the literature that we find in the New Testament is written around the sense of immediacy. Jesus is returning really soon. If we look at First and Second Thessalonians, they were concerned about the people who had died before the Lord returned. He said, don't worry about them. God's got that, that, that taken care of. Okay? But uh, even in the early church, when the, the Spirit fell at Pentecost and the church was born, uh, we find that the response of the early church was to, to give and to sell, to celebrate, all in anticipation of the Lord's return. Then they started to realize that this is not going to happen as quickly as we thought. And so we find that the pattern of church planting after that time in Jerusalem when they went out and started the new churches, was never about selling everything you own, but it was to live in anticipation, but to steward your resources in keeping with what God would have you do. So when we read Scripture, we, we engage with the sense of immediacy. So does that mean we dismiss it? Does that mean we say, oh, let's not worry about when Jesus is going to return? Or do we actually work and live in that tension of the fact that God has made a promise to us that he will return. Well, I believe that's the way we should live our lives. So here we find uh, Luke's gospel where Jesus is talking about a very, very uh, 
generalized but at the same time specific word about his return. He said, just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, and marrying, and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day of the, son, the, day the Son of Man is revealed. So here we're told that uh, to anticipate the Lord's return, but we're also told life is going to be going on relatively normally. Okay, one of, the, one of the things that we get told in Scripture is that no man will know the hour of the day when Jesus returns. The church, however, seems to have made this event out of trying to anticipate not the hour of the day, but the month and the year. Okay, so if we can get that side of it right, we think we're doing well. And we're told to be watchmen. We're told to watch the signs of the times. But when we look back through history and we see the response of the church responding to this anticipation of Jesus' return, we find that there have been huge examples of, of people really, really believing that Jesus' return is imminent. If you go back to the Middle Ages from about the 12th, 13th century through to the 16th, 17th century, the great plagues that went through Europe, it seemed that the disease would peak and then it would die off, and then it would peak again 30, 40 years later and die off, and, and this was happening all throughout Europe. And there were times and seasons when a third to a half of city populations were devastated through the plague. Now, if you were carrying your loved ones and putting them out on the street at night after they had died and the cart was coming and picking them up in the day, and hundreds of people were being taken off the street every day and put in a common grave, you would believe that end times had started, wouldn't you? You would have to believe that. You'd be left with no choice. This is the day. This is the season. This is the time preceding the Lord's return. You know, things are turning really, really bad. Of course, you push through to this century. We've got the First World War and Second World War. And of course, again, we look particularly at the Second World War, we can see an Antichrist figure in the person of Adolf Hitler with the rise of the Nazi movement. And then, of course, he is targeting specifically the Jewish nation that's scattered throughout all of Europe. And he takes six and a half million of them and puts them to death in what we now know as the Holocaust. You would surely, in that moment, in that time, go, this must be it. Surely this must be it. Jews being persecuted, God's first chosen people, an Antichrist figure in, in, uh, in Hitler. Surely this must be the end of the world. Jesus must be returning. But it didn't happen. And then we get into a little bit closer to some of our age and time, 1948, after the Belfort Declaration established a homeland for uh, the Jewish nation to some degree in response to the persecution they suffered in World War II, the nation of Israel was re-established and out of Palestine was carved the homeland that was largely the traditional area that Israel had from biblical times. And so people saw this as a sign from God that there was a great incoming, a gathering of the Jewish nation, the 12 tribes of Israel coming from different parts of the world, like that great ingathering that, is, that has already happened twice throughout Scripture after they've been taken away in slavery. Here they are returning. And so folks with uh, some understanding, and you can understand how and why, said, well, look, 40 years after the establishment of the nation of Israel, um, 1988, 
That's 40 years. That's a period of judgment. Surely that must be when Jesus comes back to judge. Okay, so this is all around about a couple of years before, uh, after I became a Christian. So yeah, I was about six months a Christian, and I heard about this, and I thought, well, this is going to be a pretty, pretty short gig until um, till Jesus returns. Okay, and then 1988 passed. A few people got up and said, oh, no, we're working off the wrong calendar. You know, that's a Gregorian calendar. The Jewish Hebrew calendar works like this, so we gave him another year or two's grace. Nothing happened, okay? And so somebody then says, I know, I know. It's a jubilee after the establishment of Israel. It's 50 years, okay? So 1998 turns up, you know, have your house all sold, ready to go, waiting to go to be with the Lord. Okay, cancel that sale, didn't return, okay? I'm being silly. But again, that same period of anticipation is there. And I remember a, a, a Kiwi guy by the name of George Curl. Anybody remember George Curl? Okay, he's a great old saint. Uh, George was a navigator on a bomber plane during World War II. So he used that as a backstory to say how he navigated scripture and uh, he worked it out that Jesus would be returning in 2005. Okay. So 2005 came and went. But the challenge that we face as the church is this, and that is that every time we have somebody suggest a date, we get it a little bit cynical, and we start to move away from anticipating when that actual event will occur. So it's sort of like 1988, you know, I was like leaning in going, this will be good, you know, this will be good. Times of the Gentiles are closing. There must be somebody on earth who's going to receive the gospel. And in that moment, the Lord's going to say, the times of the Gentiles have closed. I'm coming back. So 1988 comes and nothing happened. So you're like, oh. I sort of hung my own reputation out to dry on that one. You know, I told my family and my workmates that Jesus is coming soon. Yeah, then 98 comes. I sort of suggested that he might come. 2005, I kept it to myself. <laughs> but you see what I'm saying? It's, it's very easy in the anticipation of being a watchman that you actually get a little bit tired at one level, cynical at another. And, and what can ultimately happen is that we can remove ourselves from what is a very, very important part of our Christian faith. And, and it's this part of the Christian faith that James is wanting to bring back into our perspective and put a right perspective on it when he says, be patient. Just be patient. Okay, so we're going to move into that part of it now. Just be patient. So we are told um, by James, we'll go to that. James, don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is waiting at the door. Now, remember? We've just been told that the return of Christ is imminent. So the reference there saying the judge is waiting at the door is basically saying, listen, you guys, look after each other. Don't grumble against each other. Don't concern yourself with what your pastor wears. Okay, you've got other things to concern yourself with. Don't grumble. Because why? The judge is waiting at the door. There's going to be coming a time when, you know, this sort of stuff is just going to be um, seen as petty as it is, as small as it is. Okay? Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, 
Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. So history, the history there of Israel is being, being used. They, they know they've got this book, this Old Testament, filled with these fantastic stories of their people, their prophets, who have spoken to leaders and kings and other priests during seasons of persecution, seasons of rebellion, times of prosperity. And what they acknowledge is that in common, all of these prophets suffered some sort of persecution. And so that persecution is now being used as an example of how we should stand during times of our own persecution. Because the irony of this whole thing is that um, when a prophet would appear, the first thing that would happen is someone would chase them down the street with a stone, or at least a dozen people would. So you had to be a prophet with fast legs, otherwise your ministry didn't last very long. Okay? Eventually, in most cases, the prophet got caught somewhere and got stoned to death or killed in some fashion. Then 5, 10, 15, 20, 30, 50, 100 years later, they realized that the prophet was actually saying something that God wanted them to hear. So they'd run around, pick up all of the writings of this prophet, and then they'd turn them into a holy book. Literally what happens. Literally what happened. And so he's saying here, listen, you should take an example from the prophets. They persevered under persecution. And they were ultimately listened to, but during the time of their life, they were misunderstood, they were maltreated, they were persecuted, and oftentimes they were killed. Now, the interesting thing about this group of uh, prophets is that throughout Scripture we are told that they should encourage us. And we love hearing stories of the past, don't we? We love reading stories of history where there are people demonstrating amazing heroics, men and women who have changed history. And for the Jewish nation, their prophets were those people. And the writer of Hebrews calls them a, a, a cloud of witnesses. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Let us run this race. Sorry, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews is telling us that our example, our best example, needs to be the person of Jesus. And running a race, persevering through all of the challenges. Uh, it's, very, it's very hard in today's environment to find something similar. But we realize that as Christians, we will be challenged. There will be times when we are persecuted, misunderstood, maligned, disregarded, just simply ignored, or just seen as somebody who carries a, a strange worldview. Don't, don't hang out with them. But they're told to take the example of Jesus who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Look, there's lots of examples in our world today. I think of the Rohingya people 
who have come out of Burma, uh, persecuted and moved out of Burma last year into the Bangla region in Bangladesh. Here is a people dispossessed. They were being persecuted by the Burmese armies. They were being killed in their villages. And so they endured. They endured on the basis of a joy set before them, the hope that when they arrive somewhere else, they'll be safe. The same way with the boat people coming out of Africa into places like Turkey and Italy. They, they endure this risky, risky uh, sea travel in the hope that they'll get a better future, a better life. And of course, it's caused all sorts of challenges to Europe. But we too are in that same place where we will look at times of persecution and go, yeah, this isn't exactly what I felt I signed up for, but I've got to take encouragement because of the cloud of witnesses that surround me, that are encouraging me on, saying, don't lose hope. Others have been here before. You can do this too. Life is short. James has already told us that we're just a mist. So what he's saying is that a mist that just simply disappears at the height of day, it, it sounds like it's meaningless and valueless, but only in comparison to eternity. That's what James is pointing us to. This is a story I heard through uh, John Ortberg, a great preacher that I really appreciate, about 20 years ago. And he told a story which is very similar to a story that I've lived myself. And it's about a time, um, so I'm going to make it my own and you'll understand why. But um, when we were a, a younger family and our kids were, say, the age of 8, 19, 11, um, we'd do a lot of camping over the summer. And we'd take all the board games, stacks of board games, because we knew that the day we put the tent up, the rain would come. And, uh, and we've got some legendary stories of surviving camping holidays. But one of the favourites of, uh, of the holiday was Monopoly. We usually only played it once because it destroyed family relationships. But um, I would be there with my kids. And it's funny, isn't it? When you start the game, you're going, oh, I'll be kind to the kids. Uh, and then you move in, take over Mayfair Park Lane, and you start charging exorbitant rents and become this sort of well-meaning capitalist. Okay, But there are times, of course, when the kids get an advantage. And I can remember one time when our daughter was winning, Brittany, and uh, she was cleaning up. She was charging us all rent. We all owed her money. And she was just like, this is the best game in the world, you know? And uh, her younger brother and younger sister were already bankrupt. I was barely hanging in there with a, a high-interest loan that I'd negotiated. And uh, she was just celebrating this. Oh, this is so awesome. I'm winning, I'm winning. And then mum comes in and she goes, okay, all goes back in the box. And that's the way life is, isn't it? It doesn't matter how well you're winning, everything just goes back in the box. You see, we only get to play with the toys for our lifetime and then somebody else gets to play with them, be it the land or the house or the money or whatever it is that you've got. And, and, and so in the midst of this journey called life, we've been told that you are to endure because it's short. And just when you think James has hit enough, he mentions somebody else who should frighten us. He says, um, remember our friend Job. <laughs> remember our friend Job. And we're like, I don't want to remember Job. Job's story is a sad story. It's a tough story. In fact, Job's story is the oldest scripture in the Bible. This is amazing, isn't it? You think Genesis is, it's not. Job is the first 
part of Scripture that was written and recorded. And the reason you can see for that is quite obvious, really, because it addresses the very, very big, big questions of human existence. Not the how did we get here, but what does it all mean? What does it all mean? Let me just do a quick summary of the story for you, because as James finishes with Job, I want to finish with Job today too, because I think it helps us put all this into perspective. This is the first part of Job. Job chapter 1, then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him on earth, on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing, Satan replied? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. Okay, so the the conversation between God and Satan is going on. God's proud of Job. He says, look, he's a righteous guy. And Satan says, yeah, but you've blessed him. You've given him so much. Why would he not bless you in return? And uh, Satan says, just take away everything he's got and you watch. He'll curse you. Okay? So this is what happens and Job still maintains his integrity. So let's just push on and see why James is raising this for us. Because Satan and the Lord have another meeting. It says, the Lord... The Lord said to Satan, very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. So Satan went out from his presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, you are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? Now, this is a pretty sad story, isn't it? I know there's a few doctors in the room here. I don't know how many of you have had patients where they're scraping their boils with, with pottery. Is that right, Annabelle? Probably not, eh? But it's a very, very sad picture. One can only imagine how miserable Job was feeling. And uh, Job's wife tries to encourage him, just curse God and die, get it over with, you know. Um, and then, then Job has his three deacons, I mean, three mates turn up uh, to encourage him. And uh, that was not a Freudian slip, that was intentional. Um, as his three mates turn up, and chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter, for the better part of 35 chapters, they tell Job, you've got to just confess your sin, mate. You've got to tell God what it is that you've done wrong that brought about this punishment. There's a curse upon you, Job, and clearly if you had just simply own it, tell God what it is, this will disappear. And all the way through, Job goes, but I know who I am. I know my integrity, and I know that I haven't sinned. Nothing that would ever deserve this. He lost all of his children. He lost all of his property, and now he's sitting there covered in pussy sores. It'd be very easy, wouldn't it, to just go curse God and die, you know? But he doesn't. And then God brings about a summary at the end of this book. God, sorry, Job has been asking all these questions. The mates, the friends have been asking all of these questions of God. And so does God stand up and say, now let me answer you? Basically, no. 
what God does is he asks a better question. Instead of answering Job's question, God asks a bigger question. And this is what some of the questions were. So there's a chapter or two of questions, but this is what God says. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? He's talking to Job here. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. So, the summary that James gives us, we find in Job. And it's a summary that we actually have to keep pretty fresh in our own heart. And that is when we have questions about the goodness of God and the times of persecution and suffering, when we are waiting with hope for the return of Christ, it's not about the quality of the answers that we will receive about our our persecution or our challenges. Because those answers will never satisfy. What satisfies is a bigger question. And these are the bigger questions. Because when you sit in the counsel of God, and God says to you, where were you when I measured out the foundation of the earth? Where were you when I put the stars in the sky? All of a sudden you go, okay, (laughs) I get it. I think it's about perspective. And in light of eternity, and in light of Christ's return, I can endure the persecution for the joy set before me, just like Jesus had. The joy set before me that said that he endured the cross. His joy, Jesus' joy, was being able to create for us a salvation. And for that reason, he endured the the torture of the cross, that he would give to us salvation. And his joy comes from that great restoration, the restoration between God and his people that we might be his people, that he might be our father. It's a great story, isn't it? And so with that, we live in anticipation of Jesus' return, holding on to the tension that one day he will return, as the scriptures say. He will return in a cloud of glory, a terrifying but glorious day when the Lord will return and reconcile everything to himself, including us. Wow. Why don't we stand for prayer? God, we thank you that as we have a bigger question passed in front of us, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? We can look at this life of ours, which is like a mist that seems to pass so quickly, And yet we we pack it into the bigger picture of your life, of your presence, of your death, of your resurrection, and your return. And all of this is summarized in one word, and that is salvation. And it gives us hope 
hope does not disappoint. So Father, we stand today with generations upon generations who have stopped and anticipated, who have looked closely at the signs of the times, wondering when it is that you will return. But let us be comforted, Lord, by the fact that when you come as a thief in the night, we will be found in you. We will be found by you. And we will be found for you. And so God, give us that peace that surpasses all understanding as we, as we reconcile both sides of the river, one to the other, and realize that you're above and beyond. You're over all. And you give us great comfort by this picture of your knowing. And you have gone to prepare a place for us. And you will come and you will return to take us there. So God, we thank you that we can live with this tension, a tension that moderates everything about our life, a tension that gives us hope when there's hopelessness, confidence when we doubt, and the ability to stand because of the joy set before us. And so we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe you've uh, never considered giving your life to Christ. You've never made a commitment in that way. Maybe um, faith has just been religion for you. Or maybe you're just new into the life of a church and you're wanting to know what it means to be a Christian. The step that you make is your step. It's your decision to be a follower of Christ, to accept Christ into your life, to see that his crucifixion paid the price for your sins, all the things that you've done that separate you from God. And there's a point in time where you need to make a decision, a decision to confess those sins before God and accept the forgiveness that he offers you. In doing so, you cross a line from death to life into being a child of God. And that's the beginning of a a walk with Jesus. It's transformational. Uh, it's, It's incredibly powerful. A time to meet with God. So, Maybe during this time of uh, singing uh, or after the service, if you want to make a decision and you'd like someone to pray with you about that, just make your way to the front. You can come and sit on the front chair and there'll be those there who would like to pray with you. Equally, if you need prayer for any reason, um, please come to the front. We have some folks who would like to pray with you as well. So um, just make this time a time between you and God.